Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. In today's episode of Two Bees in a Podcast, we are joined by Dr. Jay Evans, who is a United States Department of Agriculture scientist at the Bee Research Laboratory in Beltsville, Maryland. He is joining us to talk about USDA Bee Research Laboratories in general, what they do for beekeepers, and how they address beekeeper needs. We will follow that with an interview of Ms. Jennifer Holmes, who is the president of the Florida State Beekeepers Association. We'll be interviewing Jennifer about what state beekeepers associations do on behalf of their beekeepers. And of course, we'll finish today's episode of Two Bees in a Podcast with a question and answer series, Stump the Chump. So listeners, thank you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Obviously, this is one of the ways that we try to get information to you through our podcast, but we're really just one lab or one lab out of a lot of labs globally trying to address bee health, bee-related issues, and help beekeepers. In the United States, we have a set of labs that are managed at the federal level. These are our United States Department of Agriculture Bee Research Laboratory. So there's a handful of those scattered around the country. I know there's even uh, some new ones that will be popping up soon or that have popped up recently. And in order to tell you about those labs, we brought in one of the research leaders from one of those USDA labs. And that research leader is Dr. Jay Evans. He is based at the USDA ARS Bee Research Laboratory in Beltsville, Maryland. So, Jay, thank you for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So, Jay, we're kind of bringing you in to talk about the, what the USDA labs are in general, and then we'll kind of hone in specifically on the lab that you are the research leader for up in Beltsville. So, can you tell us a little bit about your position specifically at the USDA, and then maybe... Um, we'll, we'll, we'll let Amy ask you some specific questions about bee, re, uh, bee research labs at the USDA level in general. So let's just start with you, who you are, the one you work at, and a little bit about what you do at the USDA. Sure. Yeah. So I'm a scientist with the USDA ARS Bee Research Laboratory in Beltsville, Maryland. Um, I've been a research entomologist there for 21 years. Um, the last uh, six of which I've been the research leader of our our group of scientists there. And um, this involves, as you might expect, uh, managing budgets and, and such, and also advocating and um, working to develop opportunities for the scientists in the laboratory. And of course, the latter uh, is the job, uh, <laughs> the part of the job that's the most fun um, and rewarding. I, yeah, so we, we are a group um, uh, devoted to honeybee research and to applied research primarily on honeybees and uh, the threats that they might face. Awesome. Can you tell me what ARS stands for? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, it's no, the that's Agricultural okay. Research Service. And it's, it's the branch of USDA that's devoted. It's an intramural branch devoted to research on any number of um, crop issues, animal 
livestock, even human nutrition are all, all encompassed by this, uh, by ARS. Oh, very cool. Can, so can you tell us about some of the USDA bee research labs in the nation? How many are there? And, and is it typical to have a research leader with, um, you know, like a certain amount of scientists that work under them? Sure. Yeah. So I, um, and I, again, as, as being part of one of several, I don't have um, tremendous insights across the breadth of them, other than to say that we do have four uh, historical honey or bee research laboratories. And there's ours in Beltsville. There's the um, Baton Rouge Honey Bee Genetics and Breeding Laboratory. As you might imagine, their, mm-hmm. their strength and their trait is on um, making better bees from Russian bees to Varroa sensitive hygiene and other traits, the new Poline lineage of bees, for example. So they do research on genetic traits of honeybees uh, with the hope of um, developing and partnering with industry to, to bring out better genetics in bees. Uh, there's also the um, Carl Hayden Bee Research Center in Tucson, Arizona, and they have largely had a focus on forage and nutrition. So sort of landscape level effects. They're doing really neat work on that, um, both in very close in Arizona, but also in California towards the almond uh, industry and in the Dakotas in the uh, Northern Great Plains, where there's there's certainly a lot of beekeeping and um, impact of bees. Um, and there, uh, there is also a USDA ARS bee lab in Logan, Utah, and that has been the lab historically um, focused on the hundreds of other bee species, especially the ones most important for agriculture, like bumblebees, mason bees, and um, leafcutter bees. Uh, so those are the four current kind of you know, brick and mortar, long-standing bee, bee labs for USDA. But there's a there's there's some great efforts and scientists in places like Davis, California, Stoneville, Mississippi, and Fargo, um, who are also in in that fold and doing bee research. Um, and we all um, we all get together at meetings, um, certainly electronically, especially uh, this spring. And go over research. You know, we're we're under a program where we we try to coordinate uh, research, not not overlap so much with each other. So, so it's uh, yeah, it's a fairly um, diverse set of research programs and and um, a group of scientists who are who are in different parts of the country. So, so Jay, kind of from the outside looking in, since I work for you know a university, it looks like to us that the USDA labs essentially have kind of specialties. You'd mentioned that already the, for example, the Baton Rouge lab, they focus on breeding and genetics. And and you said the one out in Tucson's more of nutrition and forage, et cetera. Uh, so it looks like that that's what happens. Maybe they all have different specialties, but also the structure of the lab is there's usually one kind of research leader, right? And then there'll be multiple scientists, usually what, three to five, at that lab, each of those doing their own kind of branch of whatever the the, the general lab focuses on. I just want to talk a little bit about the structure of, of one. That's right. Yeah, and 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 maybe because we are a government agency or a government group unit, um, there is a structure. Uh, but we we also you know kind of blend together in our interests. But the Bellsville Laboratory is is has been historically and is focused on disease and disease management issues. So everything from American fowl brood to viruses and um, uh, fungal pathogens and, and 
pathogens now of adult bees. So, so kind of the span of, of, um, bad actors that can impact honeybees. Uh, we do it. We have six scientists, um, five of us running kind of, uh, field or lab projects on everything from, from physiology and, and the effects of chemicals, uh, with Dr. Stephen Cook, who's also picked up, uh, I think in collaboration with you in Gainesville, a big Varroa mite pro- program. That's right. Well. Absolutely. I know Steve. Yep. And um, Dr. Miguel Corona, who's who's been looking at interactions of nutrition and disease lately, um, and the physiology of again of bees, how they how their long term impacts of having having a bad uh, food day might be. Uh, Dr. Judy Chen is a scientist working uh, very closely with me. We're both really keen on on um, diseases and also how bees fend off those diseases. She's an expert in viruses and nosema and has longstanding work in that realm. Um, we have a new research scientist, uh, Dr. Mohammed Abaraki, and he's he's going to he aspires to kind of blend some of our projects together at the colony level. So looking at uh, both chemical stress and other stresses on bees at colonies uh, at the colony level. And he will use some of these sort of newer technologies such as RFID tags on bees to kind of see what, what happens in the big picture um, as they go out and about in, the, in their lives. Um, and we're also joined by uh, Dr. Anna Childers, who's a, a computational biologist. And she again, kind of bridges different projects and has some uh, larger scale projects uh, with genomics for ARS as a whole, sequencing insect genomes. Um, so that's the group, but the, those, are, those are the ones sitting, um, kind of doing, doing research, but also planning for the year. And then we have eight other empl- full-time employees um, supporting those efforts and, and really driving many of the experiments themselves. And they're, they're a great set of people. Um, we're full up, as it were, for employees, and we couldn't be happier with the, the staff there. Uh, and then I think as with your unit, uh, the Honeybee Research and Extension Lab, we also uh, benefit from visitors. So our population is almost always double those 14 in terms of uh scientists at all stages in their careers, students, volunteers, and such. And then in the summer, we pick up a few more to help with field projects. So, so at, at the max, we're, we're about 30 people in the, in the building. That's amazing. It's always so fun to hear about, you know, different specialties and of course, all the research that's going on. And I know I've said it before in past podcasts, but it's just, there's so much to be done. Um, I don't, you, you might agree with it. You might disagree with it, but there's just so much research that can be done, um, which is really awesome. So you've just told us about your research projects. And so I guess I have a question about the research that you all do. You said you had some field research and some lab research. Do you, do you guys have an apiary? Do you normally collaborate with beekeepers or how does that research kind of look like as far as field research goes? Yeah, great question. So we do have, we're actually lucky enough to be on a 4,000 acre campus uh, that's historically been there for USDA. And we have, 10 to 12 apiaries scattered across campus uh, for different projects, some of which are, are aspiring to be more isolated than others, and, and um, some that are right outside the building, uh, some of the colonies that I'll tap into for, for um, samples for testing disease are, are a walk outside the back door of the building. Um, next to our pollinator garden. So 
we, we, in the summer, we get up to nearly 300 colonies and then we pair back quite a bit in the winter. Um, but always, you know, a bit more than a hundred, maybe 140 or so colonies. Uh, uh, most of the field projects are being run by, by doctors Cook and Corona. And, and I think, uh, Mohammed will also kick in of course with those. Um, but you know, Judy and I kind of aspire to that too. So we'll have our own pet apiaries um, with between uh, twelve to twenty colonies, and we'll we'll kind of mess around with those as well to test some of um, uh, ma- mainly following disease loads and and occasionally doing a, a a trial medicine for those colonies. But but yeah, so that's the lay of the land for the colonies, and then of course um, we have uh, indoor laboratories where where uh, we do genetics work and chemistries and, and things like that. Um, and the hope is that we're, we're looking at management tools. So we'll try, uh, as I mentioned, Dr. Cook is, is hot on the trail with collaborators to get, you know, the next generation of varroicides. Um, Judy and I are really keen to find an antiviral treatment of some sort. So we've tried natural products, mushroom extracts, RNA interference. We're, we're, um, we're, we're very uh, broad in terms of what we will prospect on for that. And we've worked with re- other researchers, of course, in that because ideas come from all over. And just trying to sort out with experimentation, uh, you know, bees in cups, quite often, or even injected these just to see if we can get some leads uh, on that, on that window, because we don't really have anything to offer beekeepers for things like viruses currently. Sure. So Jay, one of the things that's always amazing to me is, you know, when, when I wear my scientist hat and I show up at meetings as I often see, you know, USDA scientists, you, you mentioned at your lab there or your area there's six and then you mentioned these other labs and I'm, I'm assuming there's three to five of those you know people at each of those so there's what 20 to 25 usda scientists in the u.s working on bees i'd, I'd say so yeah yep. okay so so that's a lot of diversity and it's it's you know as you've mentioned it's fair federally funded and you've also mentioned the, the application to beekeepers so i'm just curious how do you how do you set your priorities to address beekeeper needs, right? I struggle with that here at the University of Florida sometimes. So I just wonder on the national level, the federal level, where you're working across states, as it were, how do you set your priorities to make sure you're addressing those needs that the beekeepers you know, feel they have? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's as, as in your laboratory, it's often on our minds to, um, to get feedback from beekeepers to find out if there's a new, new scourge for beekeeping and, um, from, I'm not going to say it, but the murder hornet on down. (laughs) Um, You had to say it, Jay, the murder hornet, (laughs) come on. Well, since she said it, our podcast is now going to get 50,000 more listens. (laughs) I I did hear your fantastic interview with the great uh, scientist from Washington state. So yeah, that's, that's the topic that's been, um, let's say discussed, uh, but no, we aren't working directly on, on those as a research topic other than uh, maybe some genetics with Anna's work. Well, dang, um, I was going to send all of our, all of our callers over to you. Yeah. yeah. We finally at least learned how to identify it. So that's a, that's a plus. Um, there is a voucher for the Washington state one uh, as a plug for USDA that's being held by the, um, Beltsville, the systematic entomology laboratory. So the one wasp collected last December is, um, is in their possession and they're, and it's physically in the 
Smithsonian, the National uh, Natural History Museum, but it's uh, it's under under uh, minus one leg, sadly, which was taken for its genetic identification. It will be. A, <laughs> Did a, you see it, Jay? Have you seen it yet? I've seen, I haven't seen the physical one. I have pictures of it. Oh, uh, that's a bummer because I was about to ask, did it kill you? But <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless, uh, the, the, the point that I was trying to make, and I think that you're, you're really illustrating well, is that, you know, USDA is a tremendous resource for beekeepers. And I love the fact that there's so much diversity. I love the fact that there's a breeding and genetics lab, right, that's cranking out new stocks. I love the fact where there's forage and nutrition. They, they all do other things as well, but you know, that's cranking out new information about nutrition. You know, historically, as you mentioned, the Beltsville lab has been the disease and pest lab. And so much has come out. And, you know, you could even mention that, that you guys offer diagnostic services, right? Beekeepers can send samples to you to figure out what it is they have in their colonies. Oh, yes. And I was remiss in that. I'm so sorry. Yes, we have. Um, in fact, our, our birth was from a service and a, efforts uh, in D.C. at the Witten Building, right, perched on the Smithsonian Mall or the Capitol Mall, uh, doing diagnostics, doing disease, starting with American fowl brood, which was, was formally at least named by a, by a USDA researcher um, 104, 114 now, I guess, years ago. Um, so, yeah, so that diagnostic service has, has evolved over 100 years and um, is a big part of our contact with beekeepers and especially the, uh, the state inspectors. So we can offer um, free diagnostics, especially for brood disease, which is, again, the the root of this service, and we provide those uh, to any number of folks, uh, from hobby beekeepers to uh, commercial beekeepers, and of course the inspectors. And the goal, uh, the reportable goal, or the actionable goal, is is of course to uh, try to limit American fowl brood. Uh, but we get EFB samples in droves these days, and we also do a service to check mite counts and nosema counts for those. Um, beekeepers for that they just maybe want a second opinion from their own abilities so so yeah so the diagnostic service is a great way and we we get kind of a bead on you know what's happening in different states that way uh, in terms of brood disease it's you know there's been upticks of efb in different places so so we get that as a great um way to uh to do uh, different experiments uh, later in our laboratories. You know, if we find out EFB is a problem, we might uh, pick up some research in that direction, for example. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, uh, and that is the, the truth is also with our US university colleagues, um, you know, there's so many questions to tackle with bees and there's so many different ways and different expertise of the scientists and so you know it's like you have the you have an army looking at it and you all want to kind of do what you're good at and try to benefit from the manifold more research that's in different institutions so so we all um yeah there's a lot of uh, i guess coordination and and discussion of research at meetings and online to kind of uh help us shape what would be most impactful yeah, that's just exciting. I, I look out and I see, it, it seems to me that the USDA is even bulking up some, right? You know, they're adding positions, adding places. And I, I just think that there's even more great things that's going to come out of the USDA research labs in the future. I'm excited to watch it. I'm glad it's happening now. I think um, it's going to be a great benefit to beekeepers, really not just in the U.S., but outside the U.S. as well. So, Jay, I really thank you so much for joining us today to talk about 
all that the USDA offers and what they do on behalf of bees and bee health. Thank you very much, Jamie and, and Amy. It's been super talking to both of you. And I, yeah, I truly enjoy your podcast and also, of course, the, the huge efforts you're making for bee health as well. Well, thanks, Jay. Guys, you've been listening to Dr. Jay Evans, who's the research leader at the USDA ARS Bee Research Laboratory stationed in Beltsville, Maryland. All of these labs will have links to the labs in our show notes so that you can go check out their website, see what it is they do, see the scientists who are there. I regularly use the scientists as resources for questions that I have, and I think you guys will find them useful as well. So make sure you visit the show notes and take a look at what the USDA research labs do for you. For more information about this podcast, check out our website at ufhoneybee.com. One of the things that you'll find out when you get into beekeeping is that there are bee clubs absolutely everywhere. Sometimes people ask me, <laughs> Amy, what, when I'm traveling, what are, you, what are you traveling for? I'm like, well, I'm going to go give a talk about bees. They're like, well, who are you going to give a talk about bees to? I said, well, beekeepers. They're like, there are clubs? <laughs> I was like, yeah, there's beekeeper clubs. When I was hired in Florida in 2006, I think there were maybe a dozen or two dozen beekeeping associations in the state of Florida, but, but now there's 40 plus. And, you know, with, with these bee loss issues, clubs have exploded. There's local bee clubs popping up everywhere, including in big cities. So there's local clubs, there's state clubs, regional clubs, national clubs, and even international beekeeping organizations. Mm -hmm. So, Listeners, the reason I'm introducing this topic this way is because you likely have a bee club near you, and I want to spend some time talking about the value of beekeeping clubs, beekeeping organizations, what they mean for you as beekeepers, how you can get involved. And we are blessed today to have a great guest, Jennifer Holmes, who's the president of the Florida State Beekeepers Association. She's also um, the, the owner and proprietor of the Hanai Honey Company and is a UF. Hanai, it's honey. Honey, I know. I was going to mess it up anyway, but she's also the UF IFA <laughs> senior honey judge. <laughs> and the reason, the reason we're using Jennifer is because our state association here in Florida is a really good model for other state associations. It's been very productive. Jennifer, I'm sorry for, even though we went over it pre-show, I'm sorry. We even practiced this. We practiced over this, Jamie. messing up Honey Honey Company. So you can go ahead and chastise me as you get welcome, welcomed onto the microphone. Jake. Jamie, you're not alone. It happens all the time. We just yeah. talk about it, but thank you for Well, the, the shameful thing is I prepared, and then I failed. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, what was the word? I'm about to introduce her honey company, but then it was too late. It was all up. But it looks, it makes sense. H-A-N-I, so it should be honey. All right. It's all good. So, Jennifer, we have a lot to talk to you about today. You know, you're, you're the president of the Florida State Beekeepers Association. You, you wear so many other hats. You do beekeeping, commercial beekeeping. You, you know, you're involved in so many ways, but we really have you here today to talk to you about the value of state organizations, or for that matter, any beekeeping organization. But before we get started, our listeners are going to want to know, how did you get into beekeeping in the first place? I got into beekeeping, Jamie and Amy. Has anybody else besides me said that rhymes? I can't be. Yes. Yeah, Jamie, Amy, Amy, Jamie. Yeah. And then we call we call Alberto Schmamey. So it's yeah. fine. Any, anytime we have another another host, we try to make them have a, a rhyming name since Amy and I are so fortunate to, to have a rhyming name. I got into beekeeping just out of interest, literally. I had always been into um, na nature, plants, um, food. Gosh, I love to eat. I get excited about all our local farmers. Don't we all? Oh, my gosh. So we live, I think, in such a really unique area. 
um, kind of like different than other parts of the rest of the US, Florida, and it's not where I'm from. I moved here about 25 years ago, and it took me a little while to get used to, you know, the differences in weather patterns. And, you know, it's, it's summer here in spring and in winter, it's, it's spring and, you know, <laughs> you've got a lot of interesting dynamics. Um, luckily, when I started beekeeping, and it was about 2012, um, the number of beekeepers in the state was still pretty low. I want to say like seven or 800, maybe. Does that sound about right, Jamie? Like 2012, 2000. Yeah, you know, we were we were growing a little bit at that. When I, when I got hired in 2006, we were just under a thousand. I think it's kind of been growing, and then about okay. 12, 13 is when it just really exponentially started going up. Well, the gentleman I worked with had been doing it for about 40 years, so he just had you know a, a couple hundred hives and made a voluminous amount of honey and really had it dialed in. It was all done by hand, no mechanization. So imagine, you know, 30 or 40 acres on the coast of Florida and Southeast Florida, just kind of interacting with nature and getting exposed to bees. I was kind of instantly hooked. It was just magical. Um, um, I got to do all the things most people need help with that don't want to do. <laughs> don't we know, all? <laughs> cleaning, yeah, cleaning frames, stacking boxes, storage, you know, feeding bees and eventually bottling honey. But, you know, I got that little taste of beekeeping here and there and it really just I got just immediately hooked. So I would, you know, raise five or 10 hives, you know, five or 10 of them would die and then I'd start all over again. And, and that happened for a couple of years. And, and then my husband joined in. He, he was just as interested, but being the gentleman he is, he had gotten me my first lesson with the commercial beekeeper and took a side, you know, a side position. And then um, he loved it too. And so the two of us were not beekeepers when we met. That's, <laughs> I think. Um, but we both started beekeeping, and after about seven years, we were able to work part-time, our full-time jobs, and eventually quit and started our Honey Honey Company, um, and that's been about five years. So um, five years in, and as a, a president of a state beekeepers association, I've seen such changes in such a short period of time, haven't you guys? I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting about having a state organization, and by the way, we're a hundred years old this year, Florida State awesome. Association. Yeah, congratulations. I would have liked to have seen it in 1920. I think that's. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, well, so Jennifer, we are so grateful and fortunate to have you in the state of Florida and being a huge leader, you know, for all these beekeepers with the state. And I know that you're, you're involved in so many different projects and, I, I assume that you work with new beekeepers or people who are just interested in keeping bees because you're just so good at outreach and education. So how would you describe the State Beekeepers Association as someone that you just met? I would describe it as an organization that provides education. So yeah, absolutely. We interact with new beekeepers all the time, um, but also sort of... Uh, a filter for all the different subjects and topics that come up in beekeeping that need attention and are difficult to uh, mitigate or come up with solutions for and support other associations, agencies, and organizations. Mm -hmm. You know, Florida Department of Agriculture, um, uh, yourself, the University of Florida. I mean, 
all these things, Amy, you've seen a lot of them since you came on board. And I, I, oh my gosh, my hat is off to you. I mean, just this week, the, the Asian hornet, holy mackerel, we are just. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a different segment. <laughs> oh my gosh, we're just constantly having to face like um, phone calls about different things. I'd say some of our number one things that we have to be a resource for are um, bee removals. So we get a lot of consumers and citizens that are concerned about having bees on, in their, on their property uh, they don't know exactly what to do. Um, the second thing is we get a lot of people calling because they're concerned about what's happening to honeybees and they don't also, again, know what to do. Um, and any of these topics come up and are difficult for our associations and agencies and other nonprofits to um, mitigate, we sort of, as a state association, will take that task on. So we have a varied amount of um, officers that have different um, say backgrounds. Most of them are beekeepers, but, and, and again, most of them have been involved in their local association. So I'd say if I was to, to put it in context, like I got involved as a beekeeper, the story I told in the beginning, and then I started going to my local meeting. And then I discovered the University of Florida, um, IFAS and Honeybee Research and Extension Lab and you guys with the Master Beekeeper Program and Bee College, and I dove right in. I mean, that was a definite huge door to um, education and getting involved. And then I started learning about the State Association, and I got involved. And I felt like I had the opportunity to do things that would be helpful. I know, Jamie, you might mention some of the things that you've seen the State, State Association do in your tenure and over the years that you've been talking out there, but I've had a blast the last few years going to the local association meetings and literally meeting all the beekeepers across the state and being able to explain what the association does. Um, and I still feel like there's a ton of work to do, but um, behind the scenes, our state association is constantly having meetings, say monthly, and we're liaising with our regional association, so um, Eastern Apiculture Society, um, American Beekeeping Federation. We usually have a representative from the state among those associations. Uh, we usually have somebody sitting on the Honeybee Technical Council. Um, our state's lucky enough to have a Honeybee Technical Council. If your state doesn't have one, um, you should reach out to us and ask us about it, and that's something that may benefit you. Um, so we get involved in national and international um, stuff too, which is kind of fun. Yeah, I think, Jennifer, uh, when I think about associations, I usually kind of work my way from the bottom up. These local associations, these county associations or regions within a state, they, they are really good opportunities for education, providing resources to beekeepers, and networking for beekeepers. And occasionally, you'll see these local associations kind of take on maybe a local uh, issue of political interest to beekeepers. But by the time you're at the state level, like you are at the president of Florida State Beekeepers Association, you're, you're tackling issues that um, beekeepers from all walks of life are having. And right, you know, in, in Florida alone, and in a lot of other states and other countries around the world can say the same thing. There's this huge span of beekeepers from hobbyists with one colony to commercial beekeeper with tens of thousands. And this state association has to represent all those beekeepers and all of those interests. And then you'll have some people say, well, why would I want to join a state association? What value would it, would it get to me? So my question to you then, Jennifer, is why should beekeepers join any association for that matter, but specifically state or national associations? I think one of the best reasons would be because the organization has the opportunity to refine that networking and 
really filter through all the data. Like, for example, <clears throat> our association recently formed a few uh, new committees. You know, outreach is one of them, and we're lucky enough to have some amazing beekeepers on these committees. We realize that with the changing world of beekeeping and all the different crises and issues we're facing, topics, uh, we had to come up with a little bit of a different approach. Two of our other committees right now that I think any new member would feel comfortable supporting are our commercial beekeeping committee and our small scale beekeeping committee. And they're starting to reach out to beekeepers, not only in Florida, but outside and finding out what the major issues they're facing are. And we're coming up with ways to, you know, tackle those. Um, and again, liaising directly with other organizations and agencies that have, you know, really good structure and ability to try to work on that. We also reach out to our um, local representatives, state representatives, um, legislatively, we, you know, it's not my forte. I'll be the first to admit that when I joined the association as a, as a leader, I had to tell them, look, we really need to have some, uh, some people that are skilled here to, to help us facilitate these things. And um, so I've learned a ton about what needs to be done. And, I, and I've learned it's a lot of work. That's what I'll say. But year after year, our association is, um, you know, going to bat to try to let, create an identity for beekeepers that I, I don't know how you guys feel, but I'm still finding that through the Department of Agriculture in our state, we don't really have the uh, identity that I'd like to see us have. I've traveled to a couple other states in the last year, Colorado being one of them. And it was an event that wasn't primarily for beekeeping, but they really embraced beekeeping. The organization is Slow Food USA. And they have this really cool event in um, Denver every year called Slow Food Nations. And I had the opportunity to listen to their um, Department of Agriculture um, uh, leader speak, and I was blown away at how much uh, embracing and legislative support there was for beekeeping there that I, I said, this is one way we could, you know, grow as an organization is to liaise and sort of see success somewhere else and then bring it home and try to emulate it here. So I hope that helps people understand what we're really ultimately doing behind the scenes and how, how much we value the membership and it can really support us because we're all uh, volunteers so far in this organization, basically. So, you know, I do also travel quite a bit, Jennifer, and I'm, I'm often speaking at states. In fact, I had to add this up the other day. I think I've spoken at 36 or 37 state associations around the country. Um, so I, there's still some wow. states that haven't had me, but maybe someday they will. Nevertheless, so I've seen a lot of people's state bee club, their meetings. I've talked with their officers. I've listened to things. And, you know, they have some of the same issues that we have here in Florida, this idea where we, we, it's hard to get people to want to join. How do we show them value? And I will tell you, you know, I, I can use Florida as an example, obviously, because I'm most familiar with it. But when I look at what the Florida State Beekeepers Association has accomplished, I keep thinking if all of our states could do similar things and, and continue moving forward, you know, beekeepers would have a lot of their issues addressed. And so people might say, well, what, what is it that beekeepers actually need addressing politically or at the state or national level? And I'm, I'm just going to read a list of a few things that the FSBA has tackled in the last 10 or 12 years. Number one, uh, they pushed, when I first got here, they pushed really hard for the definition of a honey. And now there's a honey standard that's being copied around the country. And, and people are like, why do we need a definition of honey? Well, before there was a honey standard, all you had to do was slap the word honey on a jar and you could sell it. It didn't actually have to be honey. Well, now there's a definition and standard for it. There's the apiary protection bill here in Florida where 
the local municipalities can't tell you that you can or can't keep bees. That's kind of uh, looked at at the state level. The beekeepers wanted that. They wanted kind of that protection from uh, from municipalities saying that you can't keep bees here. And the FSBA went and got it for them. Bee removal. When I first got here, beekeepers weren't technically allowed to perform bee removals because it was considered pest control without a license. Well, the FSBA worked with other groups and, and made bee removal possible. The cottage food law, this idea that if, that if you don't bottle your honey in a licensed uh, honey uh, extraction and bottling facility, i.e. a licensed inspected kitchen, then you can't sell it. Well, now, you know, the cottage food law makes it permissible for people who are small-scale beekeepers to do that. You know, personally, you know, the University of Florida has benefited with their relationship with the FSBA. You guys went out and lobbied for and built a brand new bee lab on our campus. You developed a strategy for addressing the veterinary feed directive issue that we had when beekeepers no longer had access to antibiotics and needed prescriptions or VFDs to get it. You also helped out with ag classification issues when there were tax-related issues with areas being zoned agriculture and whether or not beekeeping counted. And, you know, I've just listed these. You guys have also gone after a license plate to benefit bee research and extension and own and own and own and own and own and own. I feel like I have like goosebumps right now. I it's know. just well, like, wow, that's so you, awesome. But that's the thing is like, you know, it, the state association in Florida, and again, I, I know there's listeners from around the world. This is not just a trumpet Florida. I'm just using this as an example. But, you know, the state association of Florida has gone to bat for its beekeepers trying to take on big issues. You know, you guys are always in the state capitol. You're always talking to legislators, the senators, and, you know, the American Beekeeping Federation, the American Honey Producers Association, our two national groups, they do similar things at the national level. And, and, I, and I, I wish beekeepers saw and found the value in that so that they would know that that joining the state association or their local association or national and supporting the calls was worthy because groups like the FSBA really do care about beekeepers and really do want to address the things that beekeepers feel need addressing. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to political issues, there's strength in numbers. Mm-hmm. If there's a, a small, weak state association, you're not going to be very powerful when you're trying to lobby on behalf of your your constituents but the fsba has really been able to push through some things even even during times where a lot of other agencies weren't getting the same type of attention so you know state associations associations have very important value to their beekeepers beyond just education they really do fight for and change the lives of their beekeepers and beekeepers need to know that and, and they need to demand it out of their state association or national association and i think they would and the state association leadership would value the partnership with our beekeeper. So I've kind of set you up to talk a little bit about that, but I just wanted to point those things out and, and share with our listeners that there is value in coming together at, at, at the associational level. I really loved hearing that list, Jamie. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, just to point out the veterinary feed directive is an ongoing thing that we will continue to support. So, you know, we've taken control of the, the website. And so, again, membership is really helping keep things like that going. You know, there's, you know, financial responsibilities to a lot of the stuff that we do. Um, you know, we, we actively keep a, a budget so that we can stay within those confines. But, you know, we join and are members of many of the organizations you just mentioned. So, we, we truly support our regional and state and national associations, other places. We also, you know, we want to come out and speak to all the local clubs and, and educate, like Amy mentioned earlier. Like that's probably my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been 
speaking at um, B College for a number of years, and I've always appreciated it, but um, it was really neat to see how it um, evolved and still evolves as I, you know, got more involved with the state association. Um, and there's a, a really gratifying feeling going to a local B association or B club and having a member say, you know, I honestly hadn't ever met anybody from Florida State Beekeepers Association before. Um, and I'm really grateful that you came out here and showed us how to make cream honey tonight. You know, I mean, it's, it's the kind of thing that really beekeepers, um, I think, make beekeepers really special. Um, we all wear lots of different hats. I already admitted to you that the legislative part wasn't my uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I'm more comfortable now and I feel like we have this amazing support system having so many different officers and volunteers and committees that are structured. So, yeah, honestly, if you don't have a state association in your area um, or even a local association, but you feel like you have time to devote, um, I feel like you'll feel it's very gratifying to um, come together. We have an example that we can share. I think another thing we can offer folks is uh, an example of our structure. So say a local bee association wanted to start up and they had no idea even how to form a board or create bylaws or a constitution or um, complete paperwork, you know, we would answer that call. You know, we would mm -hmm. say, hey, we can help you with that. That's not a problem. That's what we do. Um, we can even, you know, pull you along until you feel comfortable. Um, and it's a big state, I have to say. <laughs> it's, it's a huge state. Yeah. I mean, I didn't realize how big it was until we had that meeting in Chipley about seven or eight years ago. <laughs> it like changed the time zone driving there. <laughs> Once I got there, I was just blown away at um, that camaraderie and education and support and accomplishments. So a couple goals we have too in the next year or two. Again, the license plate was a really important um, goal that we've had. It's the third year trying, I think the third year, apologize if I got that wrong. Um, but the, the revenue generated from having a honeybee license plate, who does not want a honeybee license plate, okay, would <laughs> support research in, in Florida and, again, find solutions for all beekeepers all over, and we're committed to that. If we can't do that um, successfully, we're going to work on another avenue, and that's why our um, commercial beekeeping committee and other committees are starting to have more meetings, especially with things changing right now, our in-person meetings um, are a little bit, uh, you know, we're not sure, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next few months. So we're moving and adapting like our bees do to try to find ways to um, come up with um, goals for getting this research uh, money that's needed. And even honeybees, I heard you guys maybe could use some, some colonies up at the near the lab for Humberto to do some research on and we may have some colonies. Uh, you know, Florida State Beekeepers Association is registered um, as a beekeeping, so, you know, as beekeepers, um, and uh, we're part of the Fresh from Florida program. And I said, I think we might have bees. <laughs> if we do, we'd be happy to make them available for research. So, you know, that's just a, a taste or a sample of what we've been working on behind the scenes. And, and there's just so much more. So, Jennifer, I, we've talked, so, there's so much, right? There's so much that the state association does. I think on an individual level, you know, what type of resources do these associations have to offer for people? I know personally, I've, you know, benefited with my beekeeping practices just by joining associations, by finding a mentor, right, and meeting other beekeepers. So what other resources would you say that these associations have? I'd say the sky's the limit. We're still 
really trying to define those um, and we're asking beekeepers what they want. And that was a process that, you know, has taken a few years just from you know, visiting the local clubs and sending out surveys. You know, sometimes beekeepers um, look forward to perks. So we're, we're asking some of our supply companies, beekeeping supply companies, if they're willing to, you know, offer a discount. So we're working on some things like that. Um, I'd say the veterinary feed directive is one thing that is a value that is available for all beekeepers. Um, and, you know, it's tangible. People can wrap their brain around that. You know, we have to maintain that um, and, you know, take care of the financial responsibility um, and the education. We're, we host events. You know, we have an annual event. Last year and the year before, um, we hosted some fun events. I think they were, were both really fun. And um, members were able to attend for free. And we had some great speakers, uh, really good attendance. Um, thankfully, we had you guys come. Uh, we always appreciate that so much. Um, so we offer a lot of education as a benefit to the membership. So that's been one, one um, way that we've been trying to give back to our members is just to have a, a great annual event and have education. Since things have changed a little right now, we're going to shift to some online education and try to roll that out shortly. Um, again, that's going to be, you know, a benefit and free to, to members. And of course, I'm sure it'll be made available to everyone, but um, those are just some examples. Yeah, those are great examples. You know, I, I feel that beekeepers are a lot like the critter they keep. You know, their critter they keep are, are social animals. And, and people will often say, well, beekeepers are loners. Well, that is true, but they sure love forming associations, right? There's local associations, state, regional, national, international ones. And I always recommend to people to join and be involved in your nearest local association. And I really do feel like that that will have trickle up effects because you'll end up in the state association, maybe even these regional or national ones. Generally speaking, these ones that are kind of local in nature are more educational. But as you move up the chain, you know, there's a lot of policy being shaped because of the lobbying effort. Jennifer, what you mentioned here about the Florida State Beekeepers Association is a really good example about how a state association functions, what it can offer. Um, I, I encourage beekeepers around the world to find their no nearest association, get involved and see what they can offer the association and see if they can't work with their association to make sure that it's offering what the beekeepers need. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jamie and Amy. Absolutely. Listeners, that was Jennifer Holmes, who's the president of the Florida State Beekeepers Association. She runs the Honey, Honey Company, and she's a UF IFA senior honey judge. I probably butchered <laughs> your company name again, but look, I'm from Georgia. This is the best my tongue can do, so I appreciate having <laughs> you on board, Jennifer, talking to us about uh, state associations. It was a pleasure. Thanks to both of you. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye. And guys, we'll have some information in our show notes about the Florida State Beekeepers Association, but we'll also link our regional and national and some international associations that you need to be aware of so that you know how uh, you can get involved to help beekeepers everywhere. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. Welcome back, everybody. It is a Q&A time, and we've got a couple of questions from our audience. So, Jamie, the first question I had for you, this is kind of a funny one. So, after I work my bees, I smell like smoke for the rest of the day. Is there an ancient beekeeper trick for removing smoke besides taking a shower? <laughs> 
All right. Well, there's two ways to answer this question, and that's the short way and the long way. The short way is no, there's not. When I when I worked bees, certainly when I worked bees a lot more than I'm able to today, <clears throat> my wife would always make that joke when I'd come home. I could tell you've been working bees today. You smell like smoke. There, there's really no remedy for it. I'm, I'm only chuckling because this is kind of the the thing that all beekeepers struggle with over the years. But if you work bees early in the morning, you're going to smell like smoke the rest of the day. And even if you change outfits, your hair will smell like smoke, your hands will smell like smoke. So you're gonna to have to take a shower. And believe it or not, I, I so firmly believe that there's really no other remedy that um, when we built our new bee lab here at the University of Florida, I made sure we had showers in it because <laughs> I suspected there would be times where you know, I or others have to work bees in the morning, but meet with our administrators in the afternoon. So we built showers specifically for the purpose. If, if any of you beekeepers out there know of any good uh, uh, wives tales or something that we might could try, I'd be happy to. <laughs> I know, for example, when we, when we go fishing, uh, oftentimes these fish cleaning kits that, that c they, they will come with something that looks like the bar of soap, but it's made of metal. And the idea is if you what? rub that all over your, yeah, I know if, apparently <laughs> if you rub it all over your hands and these are like respectable fish fishing kits like Bass Pro and others. So I guess the, the point that I'm trying to make is, is they say, if you rub this metal on your hands, the smell of fish will go away. That may or may not be true. I've just not used them <laughs> enough to know. And I'm wondering beekeepers out there listening to us, if there are in fact tricks that can help remove smoke from our hands. I know, I know from our clothes, we're basically going to have to change outfits, but maybe you can rub something on you, but, but try hard not to uh, spray yourself down with cologne or perfume. <laughs> that is so I, funny. I think that that can also be a problem. <laughs> that was a great question. Thank you. Yeah, for just take a shower. Asking. That's the take home message. <laughs> uh, it's almost like when you eat bacon or make it bacon in your house, that smell just never goes away. You know, it's funny. Amy is not, my wife will no longer cook bacon in the house. We have this gas grill outside. that has got a side burner and anytime we're going to eat anything with bacon, she goes outside and cooks it just for that reason. So that bacon so and awesome. fish and bee smoke. That's what they all have in common. <laughs> we just discovered it right here on Two Bees in a Podcast. I was about to say, you just made a great joke. Oh, did I? What do those things have in common? Yeah. They stink. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So for the next question that we have. So when you first receive a package, I've been told you're supposed to seal the entrance for the first day or two. Is this true? So that is true, yes and no. So what I would say from the from the yes part is it might actually be you know, ideal because what happens is when you install a package, let, let's, let's slow down and think about this. So you got this package. Mm -hmm. and if you read the instructions, it often says, you know, mist the bees with water with a little mister from the outside that kind of helps them clump together and you dump them into that new hive in which you're wanting to hive them. Well, as they begin to dry off, they'll come out and, and they can fly away. I have certainly installed uh, even here at the University of Florida Honeybee Lab, we've installed 100 packages one time where two or three or more of our colonies just instantly left. And they hmm. coalesced into these mega clusters hanging on trees, these mega swarms. And I think in those instances, what's happening is that there can be a virgin queen or a queen in general running around in the package. Because believe it or not, the hives that they use to dump the bees into the packages from are different than the hives that they use to rear the queens. So these queens will be in cages from one cohort of hives and the bees will be dumped into the package from another cohort of hive. And then they'll put the cage in there and, you know, ship it to you. So there will be a queen in the package cage, but there may also be a free running queen that was missed when the bees were shaken into the package and so, or so shook it to, 
well, place in the package. I don't know if shook or shaken is the right thing, Amy. You can laugh at me. I'm from Georgia. I'm just moving on. When, when they are placed into the package. So I think oftentimes what can lead these bees to leave these hives is that there might be a free running queen or there was a free running queen in another package and they, they swarmed and just everybody got swarm fever. I, I mean, I've seen that with my own eyes. And so what a lot of people will do then to stop these package uh, migrations is they will close the entrance of their hives for 24 hours, just like this questioner asked. And, and with the premise that if I can get them to stay in their hive for that period of time, then I'm you know, minimizing the risk that when I open the entrance that I'm going to lose mm-hmm. that package. But that can only be done successfully if it's not hot outside. Sure. Right. Because you, you close that entrance and you install a package and the bees can overheat very quickly during spring and summer. So a lot of people with that kind of premise, and we've even done it here at the university of Florida bee lab is you will actually install those packages, but then move those hives into a uh, heavily air conditioned room or maybe even a refrigerated unit with the idea of keeping them cool, keeping them clustered, Hmm. you know, trying to coerce them to believing that that is their home so that when they put them outside and open the entrance, it's not a bad, bad thing. However, good. That's, that's a lot of discussion around the take home messages. So take home message one is you can screen the entrance if you want to, but it can't be hot. Most people take home message two. most people I know do not screen entrances. They just kind of accept the risk that if you're installing a hundred packages, two or three might migrate. Actually, it's a bigger, what we see as a bigger problem, Amy, is if if we install like 10 packages in a straight row, as the bees kind of come out of their hive and try to figure out where home is, they tend to migrate to the end hives. So your colonies on the end get real strong, but your Hmm. your hives in the middle are less strong. And so a lot of people will keep the entrances on packages for that reason. That's interesting. What we have done to combat this at UF anytime we're installing lots of packages for a research project is we will mist the bees, open the package, take out the feed can that's in the package, Mm -hmm. remove the queen that's in the cage, and we will hang the queen cage between a couple of frames in the center Mm -hmm. of the hive. Next, we will take out three frames from one side of the hive and we will sit the entire package in that space with the open side up. And then we close the hive back. So essentially, the package slow releases itself over a couple of hours. They dry off, they come out of that package, they move to the frames, they find their queen, etc. And it's a much slower release rather than this very dramatic dump, shake, sure. move, dump, shake, move. And we found that that greatly minimizes drift between hives and certainly reduces the risk that we're going to leave a package. And in fact, the last point I'll make with regard to that is when we put packages in hives for that kind of slow release strategy, we always reduce the entrance just so that when they do dry off, they just, they don't come storming off. Mm. But we're only comfortable reducing entrances if the bees have a lot of shade, if it's not so hot outside and if they're on screen bottom board so that there's plenty of ventilation. So to, to summarize, yes, you can close them up for a couple of day, for a day, but it's gotta be cool. Gotta be, gotta be, gotta be cool. I don't think it's worth doing that. I think that you can, 
Um, slow release them as I've mentioned, or you can just dump them straight in and just be prepared for, for migration. That's a great question. And probably when they asked that question, they didn't realize that there was so much information behind it. And that's only because I've made so many mistakes installing packages <laughs> over the years that I've, I've kind of figured out how to minimize, even though not eliminate it. But, but when in doubt, you can keep them in a super air conditioned room if they got a screen bottom board, for, you know, do that for 24, 48 hours, and then you can move them out to where you want them to be. Great. And that kind of helps with the queen pheromones being released too and them taking to her, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the key. You know, a lot of new beekeepers don't know that queen is not the queen of the bees Mm -hmm. in that package. So the bees in that package have got to become accustomed to her too before they're introduced to one another. Cool. Which is why she's in a cage. Yep, that's fair. He, it was funny, this, this individual is actually messaging me and saying, oh, she, the queen is in an envelope. And I'm like, wait, she's in an envelope? And he said, yeah. And I'm like, wait, is, he, is she in a cage in an envelope or she's just roaming in an envelope? And he was like, no, she's in a cage in an envelope. Oh, and I'm wow. like, all right, well, now I feel better about that what you told me. That was not enough information, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. So while we're kind of talking about swarms, I feel like lately a lot of people have just been asking questions about swarms. So I'll, mm-hmm. just, I'll just move forward to the third question that we had. Um, this person had a unique experience this year with what they would call false swarms. So twice within a couple of weeks, they saw what appeared to be a very small swarm flying in and out and also bearding in a tree. So one was the size of a grapefruit and the other was the size of two grapefruits, um, which I don't even know what that is like. What's the size of two grapefruits? <laughs> what kind of grapefruit? You know, we live in Florida, so we, we know there's multiple types of grapefruits. So there's small ones and big ones. So I'm trying yeah. to picture now which, which variety of grapefruit. I'm like, is this means. a softball, a baseball, a beach ball? I don't know. I, that's, I think that's always a fair description is, is to use the ball analogy. But grapefruit, that's fine. I, I, can, I can appreciate that. Okay. So when, when they capture the swarm by shaking the nuke, then they inspected there was no queen in there, um, but they also could see bees leaving the nuke and flying back to one of the hives. So, all right, long story short, in the third instance, saw another swarm fly out over the water, then return over shore and dissipate. Have you ever seen this behavior before? And what in the world is going on? Yeah, so I'm going to try to work backwards with those comments. So basically, there's two swarms that they're trying to explain. And then the third instance, they had this swarm leave and go over a, a large body of water and then return. So let's let's start with that one. And am I, is it safe to assume that that third one happened in fall too, Amy, the one that went over the water? Um, or did they specify? They did not specify. Okay, well, let's but just do Wait, it. did you say fall like, like seasonal? Yes, fall, fall seasonal. Uh, I would assume that's probably summer because they just asked this and we're in June. <laughs> Got it. Okay, perfect. All right. So there, it, there is some belief that bees struggle orienting when they fly over large bodies of water. So I don't know exactly know how large the body of water is that they're talking about. So it's possible that they went back to their hive just to restart and try again, you know, tomorrow for that reason. It's also possible that it's a failed swarm. You know, one of the things that I want to preface my answer to this series of questions is, you know, swarming is part of bee biology and biology is messy. And what do I mean by that is that we always try to assume that things happen the same way every time uh, that, that we kind of paint bees into a box or for that matter, we paint people into a box or, you know, dogs into a box. We, we, within biology, we are all capable of a huge range of behaviors. So while it is normal, most normal for colonies to swarm in spring, colonies can swarm in summer and in fall. And in Southern Florida, they often will swarm all winter too. 
So a lot of it has to do with the cues that the bees are experiencing. If there's a lot of nectar coming in, if there's warm days, right? If the colony has grown, then the bees can read the conditions uh, erroneously and they can issue a swarm when it's not otherwise a good time of year to issue a swarm. Um, fall is a terrible time of year for bees to swarm because even though it's natural, it's natural in the sense that the bees did it and the bees are natural. So if they did it, it must be natural, but that doesn't mean it's ideal. So if the your research has shown the later into the year, the bee colony swarms, the less likely it is to survive winter. So I would argue to you that those swarms that you saw um, in fall are perfectly within the range of behaviors that one would expect in messy biology. However, those swarms are almost certainly going to not survive winter. So your question is, is why would they do it? Again, bees could misread cues. It could be possible that virgin queens emerge. Maybe the colony was queenless and multiple queens emerged at the same time. So instead of one of them, you know, instead of the two queens fighting, one just left with a swarm and bees left with, I mean, there's just a lot of potential explanations for why they swarmed that's within the range of this is normal. What I would argue to you is that, you know, you did the right thing. You saw the swarms, you tried to hive them. I don't know that there's a logical explanation that we have to seek or necessarily hear to understand what happened, except to say that, you know, had they continued on with the process, they would have almost certainly died. Why would they cluster on a tree limb and then fly back? Maybe they clustered and, and the queen never landed. Maybe mm -hmm. they clustered and she went back, so they went back. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons that this may have happened. And again, it's kind of within the range of natural behaviors that bees are, are capable of doing. But the very reason you're asking me is because you know it's not best for them to do it that time of year. So we see lots of reasons that bees will issue these swarms off season. But, but whatever the reason, the swarm's almost always doomed unless they return home. Sure. And this person had used the words false swarms. So I didn't know, is that, is that a term that people yeah, use? Yeah. Beekeepers do that. They'll, they'll say fall swarms or winter swarms. They basically just mean a swarm that happens in fall. It's not like, gotcha. and, and if you think about it, Amy, if you've got a thousand colonies, you know, some, some small percentage of them is going to make a mistake and try to swarm in fall. I mean, I'll, I'll use Florida as an example. And I appreciate that a lot of our listeners are from around the world, but to use Florida as an example, we have a pretty significant honey flow in August and September. And it's with the invasive species, Brazilian pepper. And there's so much nectar that comes in off of that plant that colonies can almost get artificial feedback. Hey, mm. we're growing. The resources are abundant. It's still hot. Let's swarm. And, you know, that's a late summer, you know, almost, you know, when September rolls around, it's almost an early fall swarm. And so beekeepers just refer to these late swarms just based on when the seasons are, you know, fall swarms, winter swarms, things like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's nothing unique. It just illustrates that when you've got a mess load of bee colonies in one place, you're going to have these errant behaviors kind of pop up here and there. It's it, but incidentally, it's this natural diversity that drives the improvement of species over time. These behaviors tend to get weeded out if they're no good or amplified if they're useful. And in this case, I can't imagine a useful case for it, but, but nevertheless, it's, it's within the realm of, within the realm of normal. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you everyone for submitting your questions. We've been getting a lot of feedback on Facebook and Instagram and even on our emails. So keep it coming. We like, we love positive reinforcement. So, you know, if, if you guys have positive things to say about our podcast, let us know. If not, 
don't don't tell us. That's fine. <laughs> Amy, actually, you raised an, you raised an interesting point. One of the things I want to say is kind of we thank our listeners for the questions. Hey, if you like us, go into our <laughs> podcast and and rate us. You know, it helps spread the word. Helps us get more. You know, Amy and I, we don't get you know paid extra to do this. This is something that we really want to do to try to get information out to beekeepers. So we just want to reach as many beekeepers as we can. So like us, share us you know, rate us that, that helps us spread this uh, podcast around so that more people can listen and benefit. So thank you guys all for listening to two bees in the podcast. Hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of two bees in a podcast. We would like to give an extra special thank you to our audio engineer, James Weaver, and to our podcast coordinator, Jacqueline INJ. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.